All right, if you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 10 today. Genesis chapter 10. We're going to uh, try and cover the, uh, the entire chapter. Genesis 10, 1 through 32. Now, the whole chapter is a genealogy. Um, so, if, if you're going to pick a, a chapter to teach on or to preach on, this is probably not the chapter that you would want to uh, uh, pick. But it's got some really good lessons uh, in it if we uh, will just pay attention. The title of our lesson is The History of the Nation. So how many of you <clears throat> have noticed, maybe over the last uh, 10 or 20 years, uh, how many people are getting involved in genealogies, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you've done that, uh, but we've probably all got friends or neighbors or loved ones um, that, that get involved in, in genealogies. And it just seems they seem people seem compelled to kind of find out where they come from. Now, why this is, it's not, a, it's not a big interest to me, so I don't really understand it. So, so why this is, I'm not sure. Um, for some, I think it's just a, a, an interest or a fad. But I do think there are some people out there that, that we, we've got this thing going on in, in the world today where people are just chasing after self-esteem. I, I, I just, it's just really hard to kind of figure out. But I think some people just have this need to feel good about themselves and they need this, uh, maybe this, uh, this need to belong to a group, right? And this identity thing that people are looking for. Uh, some people, maybe they want to find, you know, if I'm, if I'm this ethnicity or I'm this ethnicity, I can't even get that out. Uh, if I belong to that people or this people, I'll feel better about myself, right? I'm not sure what all, what all is going on there. But there's one thing for sure in all our genealogies is that we all come from the family of Noah. So if you want to get a bumper sticker and put on your car that says, my family survived the great flood, go right ahead and do that. Because <clears throat> that, that would be a true bumper sticker. Your family did survive uh, the great flood. So that would be pretty cool if we got those made, right? We should do that. I was thinking about this this week. I came up with that and said, that's really a good idea. I might might need to market that right there. Um, So we know that because in the chapter that we just studied, Genesis 9, uh, verses 18 through 19, it says this, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, from these three boys, from these three sons, all the people of the earth were dispersed. So we all come from one of those lines, Shem, Ham, or, or Japheth. And I'll tell you this morning probably which one uh, we come from. Now, you'll notice that in chapter 9, it says that all the families of the earth were dispersed. So what it's talking about here is the Tower of Babel, which we won't get to until chapter 11. So today, it kind of gives us a preview. It talks about how all, these, how all these families of the nations were born and how they were dispersed across the earth. It doesn't actually get to the incident that caused that until chapter 11. So chapter 10 is just really only concerned with the lineage uh, of, of the families and the genealogy of, of human history. Now, as I said, if you were to pick a chapter uh, in the Bible to preach from, it probably wouldn't be this one. I was reading in one of my uh, commentaries, a guy by the name of Dr. H.C. Leopold, and he said it, should, it may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach from a chapter uh, like this. But the fact is, that may be true, but the fact is, it is the Word of God. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training 
etc. So there's got to be something, if, if this chapter is included in the Bible, there's got to be a lesson in there, an application in there uh, for us. So again, it's not a crucial pack, passage. It's something that I think we need to understand. It's not something you're going to study every day. Uh, but it does give us some good insights into the human race. Uh, it gives us uh, some good insights into the history of our nations. Now, it is, by the way, the most ancient written record we have of where everybody came from. You won't find anything older than this uh, that describes how the nations were born, how the nations uh, were, were created. So from that point, historically, this is a very critical chapter. William F. Albright said this, This chapter stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel. In other words, there's nothing else like it, even among the Greeks. The table of nations, and he's talking about here in Genesis 10, remains an astonishingly accurate document. Okay, that's William F. Albright. By the way, he is not a conservative scholar. So he's not one that, that necessarily believes that everything in the Bible is true, but yet he says that there's nothing like this that you'll find anywhere else. Now... When you come to a genealogy like we're going to see today, you know, most people don't care. Any, you know, we, if you ever read your Bible through and you come to this chapter, you're going to go through it in about six seconds, right? You just, you just blow through it and move on, right? You don't take a lot of time. It, it's kind of a blur, this guy beget, this guy beget, that, you know, on and on and on and on. So I'm going to, I'm going to break it down for you a little bit. There are three sons of Noah, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? There are, and this chapter is broken up into three sections. So one section for for each uh, son. So again, the first section is going to cover Japheth. The second uh, section is going to cover Ham, and the third is going to cover Shem. Now, by the way, you'll notice it covers them in the opposite order of their birth. You remember in chapter nine, there's Shem, there's Ham, and Japheth. But this one goes Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Now, why would it why would it do that? Well. The listing of the sons is, is really, it's kind of, Moses, it's almost like he says, here's, here's Japheth and here's Ham, let's get them out of the way, now let's get to Shem. Because Shem is the most important one, okay? Because it's like it moves from, uh, it, it moves toward the people of, of God. I mean, Shem by the, is, is by far the most important one here. The reason is, is that Abraham is going to come from the line of Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, down the line, Jesus Christ will come from the line of Shem. So the people of God, both from through the promises of Abraham and also the people of God that come through Jesus Christ, all fall down through the line of Shem. So Shem is by far the most important. So he goes last because it's almost like Moses says, let's just get the other two out of the way and then let's get to the important one. And that kind of moves us down into uh, chapter 11. One more note before we get to the, the verses. The genealogy that's going to give us is selective. That means it does not list every single son and every single grandson and every single great-grandson. It's not going to list every person uh, born. For example, you'll find as we get in here that Japheth has seven sons, but once you move past that, it only lists the line of two of them. It doesn't go into every single one. So the genealogy is not concerned with individual histories or individual lineages. What it's concerned with is the development of the nations. Okay, So it just kind of picks out the most important people and follows them so we can get a feel 
uh, for where the nations come from. Now, I want to remind you one more thing before we get to the verses. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis somewhere between the time they left Egypt and before they entered the Promised Land. So sometime in that 40 years, Moses writes Genesis. And he reads it to them before they're going into the Promised Land, right? So the purpose of this genealogy is to educate Israel about the people that they're going to come up against. Right? They've been in Egypt for 400 years. Right, They've got no idea what all's been going on. So when they come, it's to educate them. They're going to go into the land of Canaan. They're going to encounter people that, that are called the Philistines. Right, They're going to encounter people called the Canaanites. They're going to encounter all these people. So what he's doing here is he's educating them. Look, these are where these people come from. And, and as we said last week, this is also why God is executing judgment on these uh, people. So again... We're not going to go through every name of the chapter, so just calm down right now. I'm not going to stop at every name and dissect every name. We're not going to do all that. And also remember, there's a lot of speculation. This is written thousands of years ago, so names change, right? I mean, uh, languages change. So there's, there's a lot of speculation sometimes. Well, this, this person is tied in with these people, or this person is tied in with these people. There's a lot of speculation on that, but there's also... A lot of definitive knowledge. I mean, scholars are pretty sure about the movements of some of these people, and I'll point that out as we, as we go through. So let's start in section 1, which is Japheth's lineage. So if you've got chapter 10 in your Bible open, you can follow along. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah, the sons of Jamun, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their uh, nations. So here, the, 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 the people or the sons of Japheth are listed, and it mentions once again that these people were separated. Everybody see that? Let me go back there one time. They spread into their own lands, right? They were dispersed. They were separated. And again, this assumes the Tower of Babel has already happened, right? Now, we know chronologically it's not going to happen until the next chapter, but it's going ahead and telling us, okay, this is how the whole thing uh, happened. Now, Japheth is the father of what we call the... Now, this is really... To me, when I started studying this, I thought, man, how am I going to make a lesson out of this? And as I got through, I had to pare it back down because I had too much stuff because it really got... It got interesting. Japheth is the father of what we call the uh, Indo-European nations. Now, remember, the, the, the ark landed where? <clears throat> Ararat. That's right. And we know, by the way, today where the mountains of Ararat are in, in western Turkey. We also know, uh, the, the Bible talks about the Tower of Babel being in the Valley of Shinar. And we kind of know pretty close where the Valley of, of Shinar is which is somewhere either in northern Syria or northeast Syria or, or southeast uh, Turkey. So I don't know how God, you can see that. So, um, again, you, the map doesn't show up too well, but that's you can kind of see uh, uh, where Mount Ararat is and where they think the Tower of Babel is. So this is where the people would have settled, right, as the sons, uh, as the sons came out of the ark and they uh, began to, to, to develop families and they grew and they began to settle the land. They would have all settled in that area right in um, there, which again is kind of northeast Syria or southeast uh, Turkey. 
So what it's telling us is the descendants of Japheth, this is where they went. They went basically east and they went basically uh, west. So they would have gone uh, east, I'm sorry, west through Turkey. This would have been in where modern day France and Italy and they would have settled all of Europe. The other places they would have went is they would have went into Saudi Arabia down to the southeast. They also would have went north and east into Russia and down into uh, and down into India as as well. Now, so so pretty much, it's generally agreed by scholars, both secular and um, and religious scholars, that uh, Javon and Tira, who are sons of Japheth, their descendants moved into what is to now Europe. Magog, Tubal, and Meshach moved north into what is now Russia, and Madai was the ancestor of the Medes and the Persians who migrated down into uh, into India. Now today, this is really interesting, today there are some 450 what we call Indo-European languages. Now, people that study languages for year for years, how many of y'all, I watch Netflix sometimes and I watch a movie and it's in French or it's in Spanish or it's in some other language, and as you're watching it, you start to realize, boy, that a lot of those words sound similar, right? You can tell that words come out of languages, but they're very, very similar between English, French, Spanish, whatever it may be. Well, scholars that study this back in the 19th century, they figured out that all of these languages are related. And in fact, they, they figured out that they all come from one language. Prehistoric, before there was any history written down, there was some language, and they can relate all those languages back to one language. By the way, look it up on Wikipedia. This is not something religious people say. This is something that secular scholars say. You can just look it up on Wikipedia. The most widely spoken Indo-European languages today are Spanish, Hindu, English, Portuguese, Bengali, Punjabi, and Russian. Those are all different languages, but they all come from one language. Years, I mean, thousands of years before. Now, those each have over 100 million speakers. There's also German, French, Italian, and Persian that each have over 50 million speakers. Today, nearly 42% of the human population speaks an Indo-European language as a first language. That's 3.2 billion people. So this is by far the largest family uh, or the highest of any language family. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary. I want to read this to you out of that dictionary, not out of the Bible. This is, this is a secular thing. It's talking about the Indo-European languages. It says the Eastern languages involve the languages of India, Afghanistan, Iran, Armenia, the Balkans, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Russia, Czechoslovakia, Poland, parts of Germany, East Prussia, Lithuania, and Latvia. The Western division of the languages includes Greece, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, Switzerland, Romania, Cornwall, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Scandinavia, parts of Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and England. All came from one language. Okay? Now, again, I, you know, to me it just verifies exactly what the Bible is, is telling us. So Japheth's line, more than any of his brothers, become the great colonizers of the world. Japheth's line, if you check it back through the Russians, through Europe, through, uh, through India, through all of those languages and all of those countries and all of those cultures, it comes to find out that most of the world's population descends from Japheth, which, by the way, is exactly what Scripture said would happen. Go back to Genesis 9-7. We studied this uh, a week or so ago. You remember when 
Shem and Japheth, uh, Ham goes into the tent and sees their father naked, right? And he's cursed. And, and Shem and Japheth, they put a garment on their back and they walk in so they don't see him and they cover him. And he blesses them, and this is what he says to Japheth. May God enlarge Japheth. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. See, what he's saying there is two things. Number one, let him grow large as a people. Above his brothers, let him grow large. And that's exactly what happened. If you go back and track it, Japheth grew larger than any of his brothers. And he also said, let him dwell in peace with Israel. And for the most part, that's exactly what happened. Whether it's Europe, uh, whether it's Russia, whether it's India, those countries for the most part have never been really at war uh, with Israel. Of course, you've had dictators that rise up and, and, and treat Jews badly uh, here and there. But for the most part, these countries, these nations, and these lands have been at peace with Israel. So that's Japheth. So let's turn over and now look at, at Ham, <clears throat> verses 6 through 7. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabdeca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. So the, Huns, the sons of Ham spread out primarily into Africa. Cush is mentioned a lot in Scripture, and, it, and, it, and it's pretty clear that Cush reserve, uh, refers to Ethiopia. Uh, Mizram is Egypt, and Put probably refers to Libya. And of course, we have Canaan, the fourth son, which we know from chapter 9 is the one that was cursed. He's the ancestor of everybody that moves down into uh, the promised land, which encompasses modern-day Israel, uh, Lebanon, and, and, and Jordan. Now, real quickly, I want to skip from verse 8, and I want to jump to verse 13, and we'll come back to verse 8 in a minute. It goes on, it says, Egypt fathered Ludum, Ananim, Lahiban, Naphtuim, the other guy, Kalashuim, who, and it says, notice it says, from whom the Philistines came. So now we're seeing some names, oh, we know those guys, right? Um, we, we know a guy by the name of Goliath that came out of there. Uh, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and he just goes on, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, we'll come back to them in a minute, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of Canaan's, Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebulun as far as Lasha. So you can see what Moses is doing. He's trying to inform. Remember, they're reading this before they go into the Promised Land. And he's trying to inform them. You're going to run across people here. You, hear, you heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He says, you've heard of the Philistines. You've heard, this is where these guys come from. They come from the family of Ham, who is cursed by God. And we talked about that uh, last week. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So the descendants of Ham basically move south and west. So they come down into Saudi Arabia. Uh, they move into the Promised Land. Uh, again, in Lebanon, uh, Jordan, uh, Israel, modern-day Israel. But they also move down into Egypt, into Ethiopia, uh, down into all of those areas uh, right there um, as well. Now, keep in mind, and I want to make sure this is clear. Remember, the family of Ham is not cursed. Only one of his sons is cursed, which is Canaan. So just because you're a, a, a descendant of Ham doesn't mean you're under any curse at all. It's only the Canaanites who moved into the Promised Land, the Philistines, those people like that, that were under the curse of, of God. Now, 
if you looked at those families real quickly, and you notice we talked about Europe, we talked about Russia, we talked about India, we talked about uh, Saudi Arabia, now we've talked about Africa. You'll notice one of the peoples that's never mentioned is the Oriental races, things like Japan and China and, uh, and Korea and on and on and on. You say, well, where do they come from? Well, we don't know. It could be that they're just omitted because, as we said, this is not a complete genealogy. We said that right up front. It, not every son is, is mentioned. So it could have been, uh, you know, one of the sons went, made his way to China and, and went on from there. But there are a couple of possibilities. Now, this is really interesting. Did you, I, I, when he was going through the, the Canaanites there, did you see it mentioned the, the Sinites? And I pointed that out, right? It's not the Sinites. It's actually pronounced the Sinites. Okay. Have you ever noticed that when we talk about uh, Chinese-America relations, we call them Sino-America? Have you all ever seen that term used, Sino-American? Uh, did you know the study of, of Chinese culture is called Sinology? It turns out the word sign is a, a word that's very, very popular, in fact, very common uh, in Oriental cultures. Um, it, there's a Chinese dynasty called the Sign Dynasty. In fact, it, it's a word that means purebred, so a lot of uh, Chinese emperors will actually put it in front of their, their name. So it's a very, very well-known, very uh, popular name there. And so the, the Sinites, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, conjectured that they might be the, 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 uh, the, the forefathers of whatever it may be of the Chinese. Now, I ran across something really interesting in this study, and I want to show it to you. Another one of my did you knows. Um, the Chinese language is, um, everybody knows about, well, I, so I had a friend of mine that I worked with in a company, and he was from, uh, he was from uh, Hong Kong, and his family was from China, and he was talking to me one day about the Chinese language. So, of course, the English language that we speak is a phonetic language, right? We have, we have an alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, and they make sounds, and you put the sounds together, and you get words and sentences and so on and so on. But the Chinese language is not a phonetic alphabet. It's a symbolic alphabet. In other words, you have symbols for words, right? You, you, a word means a symbol. In fact, he was telling me that when computers came along, and by the way, they don't, they do not ever add new symbols. What they do is they put symbols together to create a new word. So he was telling me that when the computer came along, they didn't have a symbol for that. So what they did is they took the symbol for power, and they put, took the symbol for brain, and they put them together, and now those two symbols mean computer. Everybody with me? That's how the process works. They, don't, they never invent new symbols. They just put symbols together. Well, I ran across this. This is the symbol for boat or ship in the Chinese language, okay? And it's actually three symbols. Now, this is, this, is, and this is very, very, very old. Now, this is the symbols that they use. The first symbol they use on the left is for vessel, okay? Now, watch this. The second symbol that they use is eight. Now, why would they do that? And the third symbol they use is a symbol for mouth or person. See, on the boat, Noah's ark was a vessel with eight mouths to feed, eight people on board. Now, that's just incredible to me, isn't it? That their symbol today for a boat or a ship. By the way, there's a whole book out there on this stuff in the Chinese language, how symbols uh, kind of, the symbols that they use reflect biblical history. And the things that happen. So that's a, I just thought, well, I gotta show them that because 
I mean, if that don't if that don't just reflect the fact that eight people were saved on a on a vessel, I don't know I don't know what else does. And again, that's thousands of years old. It's something they not something they just came up with uh, yesterday. Now let's go back to verse eight. So we've talked about we've talked about uh, Japheth and we've talked about Ham. Let's go back to Nimrod. Um, this is kind of this. It, so right in the middle of this genealogy is this kind of this weird thing, right? It, it, there's this one guy that it kind of stops and talks about. Let's read it, verses eight through twelve. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Okay, very important. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And he also built Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. You ever heard of that city before? Rehoboth, Kala, and Resen between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. So right here in this genealogy, it's just kind of going down, listing names, and it comes to this guy, and it, sa- and it just stops, and it tells us all about what he did. It tells us about the cities that he built and the, and the, the breadth of his kingdom. So there's something about this guy has got to be important, Right? I mean, it wouldn't just stop and tell us all these details about this if it wasn't important. So that's exactly what it does. So what is it about this Nimrod guy that's important? Well, one of the things that makes him important is this is the first time in the Bible that the word kingdom is ever used. Now, the word kingdom will be used a lot from here on, but here in Genesis 10, this is the very first time that the word kingdom is ever used in in the Bible. There's never been a kingdom uh, before people have built cities and people have done other things but they've never built a kingdom so it talks about this is this is the first kingdom and the and the and the the pinnacle of his kingdom where he started his kingdom was in a city called uh, Babel so he is the f- world's first king he's ruling over the world's first kingdom and if you go look at his empire and some of the cities because we know where these cities are pretty much nowadays his kingdom stretches from the northernmost part of the Mesopotamian Valley down to the Persian Gulf and the southernmost point of Iraq. So it is a huge, huge piece of area. It was a, it was a massive kingdom in those days. Now, by the way, this is the great-grandson of Noah. So this is only three generations after Noah. This didn't take thousands of years, right? This, is, this has only took three generations. And at this point... For him to develop this kingdom, he has conquered people, right? He has consolidated families and tribes into and, and, and consolidated his power into this kingdom. And it all starts with this city called Babel. Now, at first glance, you might think Nimrod was a good guy. In fact, since he's called a great hunter before the Lord, it's almost like even the Lord took notice of what this guy was doing. But the point of the passage is the exact opposite. He's not aligning himself with the Lord. He's aligning himself against the Lord. Okay? So when it says he was a mighty hunter, the Hebrew says in the face of the Lord. Or like you know, somebody says, they, you know, we say it today, he got in my face. It's in the face of the Lord or against the Lord. So, so Moses here is reminding his readers that, that his tyranny, his kingdom did not go unnoticed by God. He was the founders of two cities that we know of very well. The one is, of course, Babel. The other is called Nineveh. Both of those were enemies of Israel. 
and enemies of the people of, of God. By the way, Babylon would go on in the Bible to become symbolic, isn't it? For a system that exalts itself against God. Because it, that city is exactly what it's doing. It was exalting itself against God, led by its leader, a man named Nimrod. And it would, as I said, it would go on through the Bible to become symbolic as, as, a, as a system that does that as well. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived in Roman times, wrote this, Nimrod was a bold man and of great strength of hand, and he gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them to a constant dependence on his own power. Now that is an interesting statement. You see, what it's saying here is that when he wants to turn people away from God, what he does, he makes them dependent on him. He's the ruler. He's the king. He's the, the supplier. Everybody with me? See, that's what, that's what dictators, that's what tyrannists do. They, they take over every aspect of your life, so you have to depend on them, not, not God. Okay, and that's exactly what he said he did. You also want to note that Nimrod was the nephew of Canaan who was cursed by Noah. It's almost like Nimrod... You remember back with Cain? We talked about Cain earlier in the chapters, and and God said, Cain, you're going to be a wonder uh, on the earth. And and Cain walks out and says, no, I'm not. And what's the first thing he did? He built a city. He said, I'm settling down right here. I'm going to do the opposite of what you tell me to do. It's almost like when Canaan was cursed... Nimrod said, you, you think I'm going to be on a curse? I'll show you. I'll be the exact opposite. I, I'll make them say, here comes Nimrod. You think I'm going to be a slave? I'll be a slave to nobody. So he almost, he, it's like he goes the other way. I'll show them. I'll show God who's going to be a slave. I'll be the mightiest man on earth. In fact, his name in the Hebrew means we will revolt. That's what his name in the Hebrew means. We will revolt or we will Rebel. So he establishes these cities, he establishes these kingdoms in defiance of God. So only, listen, only three generations past Noah, and here we are again, all over again. Same thing that happened after Adam, same thing with Noah, it happens all over again. Just like Cain, just like Lamech. And what it shows us here is that humanity, and, and, and Moses goes out of his way, only three generations after Noah, humanity is already deteriorating. It's already going downhill. It's already caught up in just outright rebellion and sin and rejection of, of God. Now, as we follow this next week into chapter 11, we, we kind of get caught up here in, the, in really the hopelessness of humanity. Why, you, know, you just see it over and over. Why don't they turn to God? But they always go the other way. It's like the warning of the flood did absolutely nothing. It did nothing. The new world is exactly the same as the old. Now let's turn to Shem, the, the third brother, or the oldest brother. Verse 21. To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber... The elder brother of Japheth, children were born. By the way, that word Eber is a word that we know very well today. It eventually will evolve into the word Hebrew. Okay, So Shem, he's saying, is the father of all the Hebrews, all the Jewish people or the Jewish uh, race. It goes on, verse 22, The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Aparkshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Aparkshad fathered Shelah. Shelah fathered Eber. 
And to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So Moses attaches a quick note to the, uh, to the name of Peleg, um, which is, uh, basically means divided. That's what the word means in the Hebrew. So in his day, this, this kid named Peleg, in his day, the, the, the Tower of Babel happens. Because this kind of gives us a, a chronology of the Tower of Babel. And what it tells us is it didn't happen thousands of years later. It really happened in probably the third or fourth generation after Noah. It's when the people of the earth were dispersed. 26 through 31. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Harzameth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, and Dikla, Obel, Abamel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan, and the territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So these, the sons of Shem, all settled in the Middle East. From the Black Sea, which is up in Turkey, all the way down to the Gulf of Aden, which is at the tip of Saudi Arabia. So you get this big area here where the sons of Shem all, all gathered or all migrated to. Okay, so they're all scattered out down in this area uh, right here. So you can see the difference. Remember we talked about Japheth? I mean, he goes everywhere, right? Europe, Russia, uh, all over the place. Uh, Japheth is a little more, I'm sorry, Ham's a little more defined. And by the time you get to Shem, they stay right over there in the middle East. Verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, let's close this out with some type of application. What is this all about? What, what you know, as I said going in, one of the reasons for this is to educate the Jews, educate the people of Israel on what they were going to encounter as they go into the promised land. God, he, Moses says, this is where all these people you're going to go in and displace. This is where they, this is where they came from. So that was one reason. But what do we get from it? What, what should we take from this? I think that the lesson for us is pretty clear, clear. how people quickly forget God. It is just amazing to me when you read. Remember, we went from Adam all the way to the flood, and we saw how quickly people became evil. And God said, I'm going to bring a flood. But, but even when he blessed, remember when he blessed Noah, he said, even though people are bent toward evil from their youth. Remember that? He says, I know that. See, God doesn't, God doesn't come into this with blinders on his eyes. He knows what's wrong with us. He knows we're born with sin. He knows that. And it's just a lesson for us, I think, how quickly people go the other way. If you look at that chapter, and real quickly, you look at verse 1, and look at verse 32, you'll see this. Sons were born to them, and they throw in after the flood. And then in verse 32, it says the same thing. And from these... The nation spread abroad after the flood. You would think, wouldn't you? Again, we're not very far after the flood. Nimrod is, is building his kingdom, and, and Noah's living right over there. Right? These guys know what happened. It, this isn't some thousands of years later, and they've forgotten what happened. Noah's living right there. He's got to watch all this happen. You would think that a judgment as catastrophic as the flood would change people's minds, wouldn't you? You would think for generations, at least, or at least as long as Noah's alive, people would think, man, we've got to be careful here. 
we got to worship this God because he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna destroy us again. But yet when you read the Bible and you read history, you never see that. that what you find is, is you'll find a few people here and there following God, but for the most part, the many are always on the broad road. It's the few that's on the narrow road. It never changes. So for me, when I read this, it's really overwhelming, to be honest with you, to think of all those people that went into Europe and all those people that went into Russia and all those people that went into India, and they all died without the one true God. Whole nations of people, millions and millions, living and dying and not knowing God. Living and dying in these crazy, false religions that they develop. So it's a story about how far man falls and how fast they fall. It happened with Noah. I mean, sorry, it happened with Adam and it happens all over again with Noah. By the way, it is the story of Romans 1 repeated over and over and over and over again. Romans 1, 21 to 25, for although they knew God, they knew him. They knew what he was like. They knew what his judgment was against sin. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's describing people. doesn't matter if it's people before the flood, people after the flood, people of the Middle Ages, people of the, of the 21st century. doesn't matter. It's just describing people. Although they know God, they turn and go their own way. And this, this history, this genealogy just tells us this same thing. Men behave the same way. Although they know God, they abandon that knowledge and then they just move over and begin to engage in these bizarre things that they do. I mean, you go look at some of the religions out there and it's ridiculous what they believe to be true. I was in Salt Lake City this week and driving down the interstate and I look over and I see the big Mormon temple sitting there. And, and, and you think, wow, they're good people, right? They're all, you know, it's got one of the lowest crime rates. It's an illusion. It's the illusion we talked about a few weeks ago. Remember that? They, they, it might look good, but behind the scenes, there's this bizarre cultic stuff going on. It's just these incredible, crazy beliefs. They exchange the truth about God for what they want to think, what they want to believe. They mold it into their own. And so God says, okay. Have it your way. And he turns them over to their own lust. Next week, um, we're going to go to... I, don't, I messed up on this. And next week, we'll talk about the Tower of Babel, which is in chapter 11. Um, so if you want to read ahead, you can, you can study that as we go. Let's pray. Father.